Let's pray. Lord, your word is true. And because of that, we can find great peace, great comfort in that fact and um, find what we need for life. So I pray that as we look at your word today, we would do so in a way that gives us life. Amen. Well, disgust is a word that we all know quite well, but probably more as a feeling uh, than the word. In fact, an interesting thing I found out this last week was that disgust as a word um, wasn't used for about 75 years, and in the last few years has been slowly increasing in its usage throughout literature, throughout language, and kind of topping out in 2020. And disgust, we all kind of know it. It's that, it's that feeling of when you open that rotting science experiment you call the vegetable drawer in your fridge um, or <laughs> accidentally running through a park and stepping in, you know, dog poop. Um, that feeling, it's more than just a mind thing. It's a gut reaction. Um, and... Actually, disgust is tied to what psychologists and biologists call the behavioral immune system. Have you ever heard about the behavioral immune system? So our immune systems, you probably know how they work a little bit, especially if you've taken a biology class. We have white blood cells and good bacteria in us that work to fight infection and to keep us alive and healthy. Um, but the behavioral immune system doesn't work on a white blood cell level. It works with our actions. It actually triggers disgust in us and, and tells us to keep away from things that might be harmful to us, whether that's socially, psychologically, physically. And the behavioral immune system, actually, we've been finding over the last few years, is also tied to disgust of people discussed socially, discussed racially, and, and that causes us to, to shy away from things that are other, different, or potentially harmful for us. Now today, we are in a passage where Jesus of Nazareth encounters a man who, by all intents and purposes, he, he should have been socially, religiously, and literally disgusted by him. But he wasn't. He wasn't. Instead, Jesus does the exact opposite of what we would expect. And in the grand reversal, he overrides his behavioral immune system to love this man into new life. So even if you're not a Christian here today, and we're so glad that you're here, you probably would agree with me that disgust is not a good way to treat people. <laughs> people are not like rotting vegetables. Yet... Yet, we, we still get that internal conflict, don't we, when we encounter someone or something that, that feels like it might be psychologically or socially harmful to us. So what do we do about that? Well, what we've been doing as a church is going through a series called The Great Physician. And that's looking at a series of 50 encounters that Jesus has with individuals throughout the New Testament, throughout the gospel accounts of his life. And what we're doing in that is looking at each of them and systematically pointing out two reasons. What is Jesus' method with individuals? Meaning, how does he treat individuals? Because we're all individual. 
Um, how does he meet them? Where does he meet them? How does he meet their need? In order to understand what God thinks of us and what he thinks we should be like to other people. And just in the next chapter, if you, are, if you still have your Bibles open, Mark 2.17 is the passage that this series is based on. Jesus says, there's actually, it's on the screen as well. Um, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And if you're anything like me, you probably walked in here today with something of a sickness. Meaning you're, you're seeking reconciliation with God. You're seeking reconciliation with your neighbor, with your family member. Or you're just trying to figure out how to love people. And what we're going to see today in our passage is this interaction that Jesus has with this man gives us a picture of how that happens. And we're going to look at three points today um, in our passage. The unlikely request, the unexpected response, and the unbelievable result. The unlikely request, the unexpected response, and the unbelievable result. But one of the keys to unlocking the beauty of this passage is, is that we, we need to actually understand and, and put ourselves in the place of a first century Jew. What would they have thought about leprosy? Because I don't know you. I've never met someone with leprosy. Has anyone met anyone with leprosy? It, it's actually called Hansen's disease now. Uh, but leprosy in uh, the first century was a massive issue. But it wasn't an issue in the way we would think of it today. So we think of the medical condition. But leprosy in the first century was not primarily a medical issue. It was a relational one. So go back to our passage. We'll we'll see there's a little clue. What does the man ask from Jesus? Does he ask him to heal him? No. He says... He asked for him to make him clean. Make him clean. So what does that mean? Well, in order to understand what it means to be cleansed for a first century Jew with leprosy, we need to go back to your favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Um, And for those of you who weren't reading Leviticus this morning, I've got it up on the screen. Uh, What the, the fate and the reality of having leprosy in the first century would have been like. This is what each person with leprosy would have been expected to do. Anyone with such a defiling disease as leprosy, they must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkept, they must cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. So, someone with leprosy would have needed to wear torn clothes, keep their hair unkept. They would have needed to wear a face covering and shout, unclean, unclean, in order to not make contact with people. And I'm sure some of you right now are having flashbacks to that 13th day of quarantine having COVID, when your neighbor accidentally sees you taking your trash out. (laughs) But this wasn't just for two weeks. 
This was the whole life of the leper once they got leprosy. And they didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have a hospital to go to if things got too bad. As long as they had the disease, they remained unclean, which meant what? They had to live alone and they had to live outside of the camp. Now, before we get all judgy about what happened to a leper in the first century, let's think about the practicalities of this. There, There were two main reasons why this was the case for a leper. Well, first was it was a public health issue. Leprosy was a devastating disease that took years to develop. And once it, it started, it basically put someone on a path to a slow, painful death. And there was nothing anyone could do about it medically back then. In fact, it's one of the only things um, that's only seen as a healing once in the Old Testament. Um, and it's always seen as God doing an incredible miracle. So... If a leper was inside the camp, they would spread leprosy to all those who were in the camp, and the entire place would be doomed to death. It was a practical reason. They, they couldn't keep lepers inside the camp. But it was actually more than just practical. Uh, it was symbolic and religious. Now, think again, as a first century Jew, your entire culture is tied to a religious mindset. And the law prohibits social contact with lepers because lepers were not just ill. They were a walking representation of sin and death. Because this is the, the biblical view of sin. Sin isn't just something that comes into your life and then immediately you're ruined. It comes into your life and then slowly, slowly eats away at your joy, your relationships, until you have nothing left and you die alone. You see the picture? You see it? So in order to, to keep the community safe and to keep the symbolic representation of sin away, the lepers were totally separated from God and being able to worship him and separated from their community. So do you see now why the the leper didn't just want to be clean, or didn't want to just be healed, he needed to be clean. It wasn't enough to be healed, he needed to be clean. So if this case, the, the lepers were socially, religiously isolated and doomed to die, apart from a community of God, what is this man doing going to Jesus? What is he doing going to Jesus? What does he believe Jesus can do for him? And this brings us back to our text. So if you would turn back there with me to Mark 1, we see our our first point today, the unlikely request. When we look at the man in this story, we see a conflict in him. We see he practically believes Jesus can heal him, but he has a relational doubt. And that's what we'll look at next. The passage says, a man with leprosy came to him, Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So we don't know very much about this man. We don't know his name. He actually doesn't really show up in the rest of the gospel accounts after this. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record 
this story, and that means it's got to be really important. Luke said in his account of this story that the man was full of leprosy, which is a way of saying he had leprosy all over him. His limbs were falling apart. So that means he's lonely, he's isolated, and he's been that way for a long time. That would have, I I can't imagine what that would be like. It would have been shameful, and he probably would have been desperate uh, to get out of this kind of hell on earth that he's in. So the man makes a beeline to Jesus and bows before him. And what does he say? Well, he comes with a practical faith. He believes that Jesus can do this. Um, He has a boldness, or as one scholar puts it, a holy chutzpah. For those of you who are Malcolm Gladwell fans, um, he says, just say the word, it's going to happen. That's, that's his faith. That's a huge faith. That's a faith than most of us have, a bigger faith than most of us have in Jesus' power. But what's his doubt? Well, at this point, he would have seen and heard of most of Jesus' healings. It said, just in our passage that we read today, that Jesus was going from camp to camp, healing people, casting out demons, and teaching. And most scholars believe that this leper would have actually been there, probably on the outskirts of the Sermon on the Mount, hearing Jesus' vision for this new kingdom. But at no point up until now was a leper cleansed and brought back in. So what is his doubt? His doubt is relational. He believes Jesus can cleanse him, but he doubts if he's willing. He believes Jesus can cleanse him, but he doubts he is willing. Or to put it another way, the man has faith in Jesus' authority to cleanse him, but he doubts his desire to. Um, Many of you know that Hannah and I um, came from the UK Uh, to come over here, and that Hannah is British, which I think is a great thing. Um, But it was not such a great thing for when we were trying to come into the country in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, Visa bans and border lockdowns meant that the border was actually a really tense place for us. Some of you remember praying for us as Hannah had to sit in the special room wondering if we were actually going to make it through. And a really interesting thing our lawyer said was this fact that studies have shown there's a high correlation between how many people a border agent lets through and how close it is to lunchtime. (laughs) It's really subjective. But but the nerve-wracking part isn't coming to the border and wondering if the border agent can let you into the country. Of course he can. The, the, the border, that's his job. That's what he does. He says, come on in. The question you're always wondering is, does he want to? Will he? And for those of you who have gone past, even if you're an American going through the border, sometimes you're like, I could go, right? But that's, that's what's happening here. That's the request to Jesus. It's not, can he? cleanse this man, it's will he? Is he willing? And this man, he breaks all these social norms to make this unlikely request. 
He approaches Jesus with that practical boldness, but relational doubt. And as we turn to the next part of the passage, we're going to see our second point, the unexpected response. The unexpected response. So Jesus has all the reason in the world to say no. And to not even look at this man, as a rabbi, it would have actually discredited his ministry to associate with him. But instead, Jesus flips the script on his cultural and biological response. And instead of dehumanizing the man, only seeing his sickness, he rehumanizes the man with his gut, his touch, and his word. So that's what we're going to look at next. How does Jesus respond to this man who's in great need? Well, verse 41, we read that Jesus, how did he respond? He was indignant. That's not probably what you were expecting. Um, Does anyone have your Bible open? Um, There's a little footnote on that word indignant. What does that footnote say at the bottom? This is a, a free Bible lesson for all of you who read the Bible and you're like, what was that? In many places, it's translated a different word that means full of compassion. And actually, the NIV is the only one who translates this to indignant. I love the NIV. I think they got this one wrong. Um, and I'll tell you for why. Um, The ESV and others translate it, move with compassion, but this is so Jesus. (laughs) Jesus sees this man, he sees his limbs falling apart, his tattered clothes, and naturally he should be full of disgust. But instead, it says he's full of compassion. And the word used here in most of the manuscripts is a great word. It's splechnidzimai. Can you say that? Can you try it? Splash um, it's, it's an onomatopoeia. Ken says sometimes this is great. Um, it, it's the image of what would the guts sound like if they fell out? Splash <laughs> You got to get it in there. Um, but the point is, down deep in the deepest parts of him, he felt this. Splash Where do you feel disgust? Down deep, Jesus felt compassion. What does that compassion lead him to do? Second, he responds to him with his touch. He reached out his hand and touches the man. It didn't say that the man accidentally fell into him. Jesus moves towards the man and touches him. This is the compassion of Jesus and the ministry of touch. There's nothing more humane than touching. It's one of the reasons why I don't pet Benny, the cat that comes in and out of the the church. But anyways, uh, he touches him. He touches him as to assure him, I'm here. And then he assures him with his word. What does he say? He says, I am willing. He said, be clean. So Jesus pairs his gut, the feelings inside of him that that leads him to his touch with the man, and then he speaks to the man. He didn't just simply grant his request and move on. He deals with him as an individual. 
leaving no doubt that, in fact, Jesus is both able and willing to cleanse the man. Able and willing to cleanse the man. So, as a way of example, imagine if you were, let's say, on your way to work or an important meeting, and you see someone on the side of the road, they're broken down, and they're waving their hand. You might think, well, I've got a meeting. Somebody else can deal with it. I'm not even good with cars anyways. That might be your feeling. I know I've had that feeling a few times. That's not my problem. Now, imagine if you were a mechanic, and you had tools in the back of your car, and you were pretty much able to deal with most of the little issues that people would face being broken down on the road. Would you be more likely to stop? Maybe, because you can, but why would you? Now imagine you're a mechanic, you see someone side on the road, you have the tools in the back, and the person waving their hand is your mother. Or a friend, or someone who you love. Would you stop? Of course. (laughs) Cameron, no. Uh, Of course you would stop. Of course you would stop. Why? Because you see the person. You don't just see the problem. Jesus didn't just see this man and the flesh hanging off of him. He saw the man as he was. And each step of the way, Jesus' treatment and method with this man is to rehumanize him, right? He stops in his tracks to listen. He feels for him and understands his situation. He touches the man, and with his word, he speaks to him. He rehumanized him. So was just Jesus just the mechanic who probably could do this but couldn't really care? Was he forced? No, he wasn't. On the screen, there's going to be a quote from one of my favorite books about the heart of Jesus, Gentle and Lowly. Dane Orland says, If the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he most deeply is, we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attracted to him. Attractive to him. Meaning, Jesus came to save broken, lost, hurting people. He's not disgusted by it. That's what moves his compassion. That's what moves his compassion. And time and time again, you'll see in these stories that Jesus is moved by need. And I know some of you in this room, uh, because I've sat with you and I've prayed with you, might be thinking right now, okay, well, then if God answers requests because he wants to. Why hasn't he answered mine? Why hasn't he answered mine? And that is one of the hardest questions to wrestle with as a Christian, as someone coming to faith. But remember what Jesus is doing for this man. It's so much more than healing. It's so much more than a momentary thing. He's cleansing him. He's bringing him back into community with God and with his family. So to that question, will God cleanse me and bring me back into relationship with the Father and with my community? The answer to that question is always yes. 
It's always yes. But as we've been looking at, and as Ken looked at this last week with us, the healings that we see Jesus do are just first fruits of what Jesus will ultimately do with all those who put their faith in him. Meaning they're just a small taste, a small picture of what we are promised for eternity. And we don't know why some people aren't healed in this life. Some things that are broken aren't made right, even though God has the power. But know this, that Jesus sees you, he treats you as an individual, he comes toward you, and his touch, his words, can restore your dignity no matter what situation that you're in. Because ultimately, this healing and cleansing is a symbol of something much greater than just a momentary thing. It's a symbol of Jesus' power over sin and death. Right? He heals and cleanses the walking representation of sin in Jewish culture. Symbolically, what he's saying, even though this literally happened with a man, symbolically what he's saying is, I have the power over sin and death. And I can offer that to you as well. So when we expect Jesus to be grossed out by sin and need, instead, the unexpected response is mercy and compassion. And this man approaches Jesus with this request, gets an unexpected response, and we'll wrap up with this unbelievable, unbelievable result. So what happens in this story is not just for the leper, but it's instructive for each one of us. And actually, it's more instructive than just understanding what Jesus used to be like, but it's, it's instructive for understanding who he still is for us. So let's look back at the passage, verse 42. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Immediately. He doesn't say, come back in a couple weeks and we'll see how you're doing. He says, immediately. The leprosy left him and he was made clean. But that was not the, that was the miracle, but that was not the result. The result was that in this man, Jesus reversed the inevitability of his death and restored his humanity before God and before his community. So he says, you're clean. You're clean. You're right before God. You can have a relationship with him. I've restored that for you. And you can go back and be with your community. So Jesus standing here, talking to him, touching him, that was actually evidence of both of those realities happening in that very moment. But then we see a couple puzzling details in the story. So let's keep going. This amazing result. This man's healed. Um, And then Jesus says two things. So after the man's cleanse, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once to do two things. First, verse 44, he says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. See that you say nothing to anyone. Isn't that kind of weird? Um, This is pretty common for Jesus throughout the Gospels. 
Um, it's not that Jesus didn't want people to know who he was, but it had to be at the right time. Because what Jesus was doing, like I just said, what Jesus is doing is both a literal reality, but also a symbolic gesture to say, this is who I am and this is what I have power over. So for him to do that is socially, culturally insane and puts a target on his back. And we'll see that's actually what the the priests and leaders of Israel end up killing him for. So he's saying, I can't help but heal you, but please don't tell anyone because the time has not yet come. But also he says something really interesting. He, He says, verse 44, as well, go and show yourselves self to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. So why would Jesus say this? Again, I don't imagine you were reading in Leviticus this morning, um, but if you were, you would see that the process for being cleansed was really lengthy, really difficult, quite shaming, and really expensive. So in Leviticus 14, what Jesus was asking the man to do was to go down to Jerusalem, which from Galilee was about 90 miles, which could take anywhere from a few days to a week. Once he got there, it was an eight-day process of sacrifices, of isolation, of cleansing and shaving all the body hair off of him, and then having expensive sacrifices given and it was, it was a whole ordeal. <laughs> but Jesus already said he was clean. So why does he say, go and do this? Well, it doesn't explicitly say this in the text. But I think part of what Jesus wanted to do was restore him to his community. And even though he was clean and right before God, he still had a community to be saved into. And I think this is instructive kind of as a waypoint for us as Christians. Sometimes we think being right with God is all we're about here. That's it. We just have to be right with God and then you're good. But that's never Jesus' picture of the gospel. That's never Jesus' picture of the church. You're saved and right before God and before a community. And that's, that's where the work happens. It's not just a solo project. It's not just you and Jesus off on an adventure. You're saved into a community. And that's how and where Jesus grows you and cleanses you the most. So I think what he's saying is you need to get right with your community. Not that you need to do these things in order to be cleansed. You're already clean. Work out your cleanness in your community. What does the man do? Nope. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't do that. Um, which is interesting. That's kind of a by and by. Uh, there's no, um, yeah, there, there's nothing that we can necessarily get from that other than what ends up happening because the man doesn't do what Jesus says. Did you catch that? Keep reading in our passage, it says, as a result of the man going and telling everybody, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. 
Isn't that a really interesting detail? Lonely places outside. What Mark is doing here as he's telling this story is he he puts that little detail in there to give us just a picture, a, a, a foreshadow, and it's brilliant. What he's saying is Jesus swapped places with the leper. The leper was on the outside of the camp. Jesus cleanses him and he says, you can come back in. But Jesus is forced out. And this is a picture of the core of the Christian gospel. Death and sin doesn't just poof away. The whole law was was built around this idea that someone needs to pay for sin. That the sin and death that entered the world through Adam and Eve is what needs to be dealt with. But all of those things were just pointing to Jesus. Jesus never deserved to be outside of the camp. Yet, he was forced out. And he took that on himself. It was because of his gut, his compassionate love, that he comes and cleanses, even knowing that he's going to swap places with the leper. And Jesus can say, be clean and be reconciled to your community, because the place where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha, that was outside of the camp. Jesus can say, be clean, come into fellowship with God, because when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus can say, be clean, come into new friendships and relationships, because all of his friends deserted him at the cross and betrayed him. Jesus did not receive isolation from God and from his community and ultimately from life itself because he deserved it. His gut voluntarily gave up his life to take my place as a sinner, to take your place, to take anyone's place who comes to him and says, if you're willing, make me clean. Saved from sin and death, restored in a relationship with God, and reconciled to a community of believers. Or as Paul puts it, and it'll be up on the screen in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what he did for us. And that's how we can have confidence that what he says is true and real because what we should have experienced, he experienced on our behalf. And what we shouldn't experience, which is life and resurrection, he experienced and says, here, come have it. It's mine, but it can become yours. And that's the foundation for everything in the Christian life. So what does this mean for us today. Well, maybe as you're sitting here, you feel like the leper. You've never been in a relationship with God. You feel broken in your community. You feel that picture of sin and death just playing out over the course of your life, knowing that you're going 
dialogue. <laughs> and you came here maybe today looking for some shred of hope, some evidence that God still cares for you, that something can be done. If that's you, Jesus invites you to take the example of the leper. Come, bow before him like so many of us have done and said, if you're willing, make me clean. He is willing and he will cleanse you if you come. Maybe you're, you're already a Christian. You're already a follower of Christ and you've done what I've just said, but you're still full of doubt that God actually has cleansed you. You're like, there's so much sin that's still in here. What do I do with that? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Did that, does that mean it didn't work? Absolutely not. Like I said, there's a momentary declaration on your life like Jesus gave to the leopard. He said, you're clean. Go work that out in your community. And that's the pattern of Christian growth. That's what we do here every week. We, did you notice it in our liturgy? We say this all the time. We look up to see Christ in all of his glory, all of his goodness, all of his power. All of his cleansing power. And because of that, we have to look down on ourse- at ourselves and say, I am not like that. I am unclean. I'm broken before God, a holy God, and the community. But then we're reminded of what God's done for us, what Jesus taking our place means. And we're reminded that he empowers us to go out into our community. And that's out. We're then sent out as witnesses of what we've seen and what we've heard. What has happened for us, we go and tell other people about. That's, that's what's happening in this passage, isn't it? That's what we do day after day. So when you feel that uncleanness as a Christian, that is the Holy Spirit's work in you to call you to repentance. To call you to come before the Lord and say, take it away. That's a good thing. Maybe today you're someone who has someone in your life like the leper. Does anyone have anyone in their life that they feel like they're in great need? <laughs> what do we do with that? Well, Jesus kind of gives us a model to, to meet people where they're at. Pay attention to them. Listen. Feel compassion for them in your gut. Reach out, touch them. Maybe, literally, maybe not. That's okay too. But the point there is the relationship. Be with them and speak God's words to them. That's what we see Jesus doing. It's simple, but it's, it's profound. And in doing these things, we actually get to be a part of God's project of restoring humanity in the world. Of being Christ's love to others. And lastly, I, I think what this text is instructing us to do, in part, is follow, follow the leper's example. Not in not obeying Jesus, but, but in sharing of the incredible reality that we're clean. And that others can be too. And something that hit me really hard this week in the text. I think it might probably sit with you too. Um, 
Jesus sternly warns the leper to not say anything, but he could not help but say something. And for me, I know that Jesus expressly tells me to go and say something, yet I so often don't. What's going on there? What is it in me? What is it in us that keeps us from saying there's, there's a salvation here? There's a gospel. There's good news. Well, I could think of a few things that are from our passage that might be that way. Maybe you're someone who's given in to spiritual disgust. You've gotten so used to the idea that God has saved you that when you see someone who he hasn't saved or who's struggling, you think unclean. Unclean. Or maybe we forget that Jesus is the one who cleanses. We forget that bringing people to him is their salvation. They don't need primarily another self-help strategy, another psychological intervention, a significant other, a better paying job. All of those things are good things. Don't hear me wrong. But they aren't their ultimate need. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield, on on this screen, a couple slides forward, we have this quote. It's kind of long, so I want you guys to see it and read it with me. She, She puts this so perfectly. She says, He, being Jesus, did not tell the leper that God loved and approved of him just as he was. Jesus did not say that the problem of leprosy was a social construction rooted only in the mind of the beholder, and now that grace had arrived, the law was no longer binding. Jesus did not encourage the leper to develop greater self-esteem, nor did Jesus rebuke the faith of the community for upholding irrational taboos against leprosy or leprophobia. No, the problem was the contagion. And the contagion was no social construct. The contagion was dangerous. And this is the picture of sin. Only Jesus can take away our sin. Only Jesus can give us new life and promise eternal life. And those things are not bad things, but they aren't the ultimate source of help and cleansing. So imagine with me, if you will, a community that is centered around this idea of rejecting disgust and embracing compassion, of a community that is so humble that they continually come before the Lord asking and seeking help, a community that continually brings up the words and the realities of who Jesus is and what they've, he's done for them. When we are cleansed by Jesus, we can have our relationship with God and the community restored. And Jesus starts to override that natural tendency in us towards disgust by his overwhelming compassion. So let's pray that that would happen here in our church today. Jesus, we need your help. I can see so much of myself 
both in the leper who is in desperate need and also in the one who rejects him. Have mercy on me and on us, Jesus. And may we just be full of delight as we see how not only you deal with this man, but how you can deal with each one of us. Pray for your help, for your saving, for your cleansing. Amen.